I want to thank the Arising Church for hosting this. I know the kind of hard work that goes into it. The truth is, is that this is our 2018 conference. And yet, when you look around, this is not a conference, it's just a family reunion, isn't it? Uh, Pastor Tim Koo, as you shove that right into the hole on your face, <laughs> would you and Dahlia stand up for just a minute? I wanted to introduce you all to Pastor Radu Tim Koo and his beautiful wife, Dahlia. If you do not yet know them, make them as uncomfortable as possible with long hugs and uh, personal words of prophecy and all of those things. They are an outstanding ministry couple that came across the ocean to be here, and uh, I wanted you to know them. Uh, where are Brent and Teresa? Oh, stand up, Brent. Stand up, Teresa. All the way from Indonesia. They're changing lives in Indonesia, and you help them get there. Uh, we're seeing progress in Teresa's healing and we're going to complete that work. Amen. Where's buddy and Kim, buddy, Kim. I was standing on a mountainside looking at people that they had been ministering to. And one of them pulled me aside. His name is Santiago. And he said, thank you. I said, thank you for what? He goes, we don't care about anything else that y'all do, but that man has brought us the words of God. Like, so you're saying he's doing okay. With tears streaming down his face, he said, you don't understand. It's not like other places. He has brought us God's words. I did understand. Y'all give Buddy and Kim a hand. You're going to hear from uh, many pastors over these next six or seven sessions. Uh, were you guys blessed? Uh, how many of your girls went to the breakfast this morning? Amen. We are going to try to expand that. And uh, our venue only held so many. But were you blessed? Look. You're going to hear from pastors through these next six or seven sessions that are going to share extraordinary things. Uh, I'm not saying this out of false humility. I'm saying it in the sense of a goal achieved. They are better men than me because they have a calling that God has given them and they took it more serious, more early. That's not good English, but you understand my heart. There should be no glory ascribed to any man in this room, period. Uh, William Carey said it best. He said, you've spoken much of William Carey this day. Soon I shall be gone. Speak only of William Carey's God. I wanted to tell you, simply as we get started, that as the least talented among the group that I grew up in, uh, without any of the formal education that the others got, the reason that we're able to stand here having accomplished something 
comes from one thing. When God reveals something to you, never back away from it. Never change it. Never modify it. Don't look for a more convenient way. Be holy and stubborn. And uh, the Lord will do more with a man that is tenacious about what God has shown him than all the talents in the world. Often our character does not support the level of talent we were given. So if you're not that talented, praise God, you're ahead of the curve, just like me. All you got to do is grow your character. I wanted to tell you a little bit about how we got here. You know, it is uh, our topic to restore desolate inheritances. Uh, that is what all of these messages will be themed about. But to know how we got here, we began the One Association officially as a corporate entity, June 5th, 2014. And yet that's nowhere near where our story began. It's an interesting thing. You'll see Pastor Slaughter stand here and deliver something that blows the world away. You'll see Pastor Massey stand up and deliver the very word of God in a way that shatters your soul. And it's easy to forget that things were not always as they are now. All of us are a work in progress. Every one of us is being restored to the function that God has for us. Well, this story for me begins back in 1993 when I was born again. I met a man that would become a father in the faith to me. Charlie Brown, would you and Joellen stand up for a minute? Charlie's been there since the first week I was spirit-filled. Uh, he corrects me more than any other person alive, but he also encourages me more than any other person alive. We all need fathers in the faith. We need brothers that we can run with, and we need people that we can pour into. At the time I got born again, Charlie had already been serving the Lord for decades, and he had a vision, and it was of the church working together in an unprecedented way, and it was distinct from the institutional church. Something about it was not brick and mortar. You know, something about it was not the traditional way. And I fell in love with that vision because I found out that we would all be a part of it. It had to do with the body of Christ uniting in special ways. The kingdom without carnality. Christians that did not compete in any way. Selfless, sacrificial saints. Does that sound good to you? Well, you're living in it now. As time went on, we planted a church in 2002. It is so funny to be standing here with hundreds because we put 50 chairs in a garage and invited our neighbors and they all said no. Our very first church service, I preached to my wife and my children. And by the time there were 20 people in our congregation, we were regularly called a cult. Some things never change. A cult is the church down the street that loves Jesus a lot more than you do. From that beginning in a garage, we had the opportunity to see a young Pastor Nick Slaughter, see Pastor Zeke Lamb, Pastor Michael Hutchinson, Pastor Brent Vincent, Pastor Buddy Brasso, and so many more. And they came in and they're just like so many of us. They had a dramatic experience with the Lord. They had a calling from God and they didn't know how to execute it. But men grow. If you don't like what you are today, you are going to be further along 
tomorrow. And now I'm standing with men who were sons that are now peers that I believe excel me in every way. This is the goal of Christianity. Even Jesus Christ said to his disciples that they would do greater things than him. The goal is that every generation go further, and we're seeing that happen. From these men and others that we deepen relationships with, Justin Johnson and I grew up together. But there was a time period during this church planting where we had to deepen our relationship. Wade Sutherland pastored the high school that I got thrown out of. <laughs> and Matthew Pirro and I met in a fist fight at 16 years old over Jennifer. <laughs> From groups of men like these, we get guys like Jake Womack, Zach Lamb, Will Do, Jeremy Pounds, Eli Kanichka, Nick Massey, Anthony Acevedo. You just, you keep going. And this is what happens is it goes through the generations. Never underestimate what God will do with the faithful obedience to what he's told you. He doesn't need you to reinvent things. He doesn't need you to find a better way or to critique him or to jump on the latest fad. He needs you to do exactly what he told you to do. Somewhere around 2011, Exodus 15, 27 began to shake my life. And it was, as usual, a time of warfare. I hope God speaks to you in peace, but I hear best from him while the bullets are flying. In Exodus 15, 27, we have a very unusual scripture. It says, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The Lord began to deal with me about this. And I, you know, I don't know why he picks obscure scriptures. Maybe it's because we have a kind of familiarity that breeds contempt with the ones that were already, you know, quilted on pillows and things. I had never really thought much about this scripture and suddenly I couldn't do anything but think about it. It was a month where my father died. My truck was stolen. I, I can't tell you the number of things that happened during this time. Uh, 40 days in a hospital sleeping on the floor and God speaks to me about this. I'm like, you know, this is not anything that I'm asking you. I've talked to you about many things and he's like, yeah, I get to set the priority of our conversation. You talk too much anyway. And what happened is I began to see 12 springs that would water the 70 nations of the world. Uh, I don't want to go through what it takes to teach that to you. I just want to point you in a direction. In Genesis 10, three sons had gotten off of the boat, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And when you look at Japheth's descendants, there are 14 of them. When you look at Ham's descendants, there are 30. And when you look at Shem's descendants, there are 26. That's a total of 70. Since political boundaries move all of the time, you can have the Soviet Union or you can have it broken apart in a few years and we create all of these stands. Uh, you can have a Hungarian empire or you can have a Hungarian and Romanian empire. Because our political lines move to this day, the Jewish language simply refers to a nation based on the son of Ham, that, or the a son of Noah that you descended from. So Ibrahim stood up earlier and he prophesied. We in English say he's an Egyptian. In Hebrew, that's not what you say. You say he's Mizraim. He is one of Ham's sons, Mizraim's descendants. Mizraim is a son of Ham. You following me so far? 
to them, no matter how much the political lines change, there are 70 nations in the world represented by these 70 palm trees. Then I began to notice that Jesus picked 12 people, just like 12 springs that were there. Those 12, he wanted to minister to his nation. In fact, he told them in Luke 10, I'm sorry, Matthew 10, to only go to the lost sheep of Israel. But when those 12 turned into 70, somebody say 70. 70. By the time you get to Luke 10, he sends 70 and they're to go into all of the world. This is because what starts as a trickle of water in a spring was always supposed to be a raging torrent that reached the ends of the earth. What God has begun in you, what the almighty power of Jesus Christ in his Ruach HaKodesh has begun in you was always intended to flow outward. When the spirit was poured out at Pentecost, it was in an outward direction. First in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. What begins with you should never stay with you. In 2011, that settled in on us in a way that was overwhelming. We had our first $20,000 given to missions at that time. Now by $20,000, what I want you to understand is that's $100 at a time or $20 at a time. A lot of kitchen tables sold, those kind of things. Since that time, the One Association has given more than a million dollars to missions. In the last seven years, we have been focused on something. And um, it really has to do with something that you see in the temple. We're going to get into a word here in a minute. I just want you to get this history. In 1 Kings 7.49, you have an odd description. It's a furniture layout. And you're like, God, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Like, we know you breathed every word on the page. But really, do we have to know how many cubits things are apart? Do we have to know that? And the answer is always a resounding yes. At every level that you look at the scripture, you will find something that is beautiful. What we find is in the temple, there are five menorahs on one side of an altar and five menorahs on another side of the altar. That means nothing if you've never seen a menorah. But having seen the menorah and knowing that it has seven branches, if you have five on one side and five on the other, that's ten total menorahs and each has 70 branches, how many do we have? Or each has seven, then we have 70 burning fires in the house of God for the nations of the world. You know, Isaiah picks up on this. He says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus picks up on it. He says the same in Matthew 21, where he's actually quoting Isaiah 56. God's heart is burning for the nations. Can he really be our Lord and master if our heart doesn't burn for the nations? Probably not. Our desires have to match his desires. When we realize this, something happened to us that probably is happening to you as you think about it. We thought, what an overwhelming task. We can't do that. We can start with a life. We can move to a family. We can hope to affect nations. But how do we begin to affect the world? And it was clear that Christianity has always been communal. What you can't do by yourself, we're supposed to join together in churches and help each other accomplish. What if the church of the Almighty God actually was concerned with his priorities? Man, it would make a profound difference, wouldn't it? What happened is over those seven years, I went to 33 countries 
And uh, that's not because it was ecotourism. You know, 40 days in India on a dirt floor. Um, I don't, Zeke, I don't remember how long we were in Honduras, but I know I brought back friends, you know, parasites that took us months to get rid of. Some of those countries we went to as many as 10 times, trying to establish relationships, places to work. In many of those places, we now have one association missionaries. I slept more than two years outside of the country in that seven-year period. And um, we made over 100 international trips. Now, the reason that I'm telling you that is to display the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ among the nations is a pretty tireless effort. In none of those travels, not one, did I ever go alone. Not, not one time. Your pastors, your elders, your friends and co-laborers, someone was always with me. Can I tell you that one chase a thousand and two ten thousand? Do you know what it's meant to me to have your pastors and elders there when I couldn't carry my bag any further or sat down and cried because the mountain was that steep? Jesus Christ sent them out two by two. And what is happening to us is we no longer have to go alone. In 2015, we held our very first conference. That was one year after we were incorporated. Something that was birthed in 1993, that the fires were stoked of in 2011, didn't become a legal entity until 2014, and we didn't have our first meeting to organize anything until 2015. The Lord takes his time. And as much as I'm in a hurry for you to reach the edges of the earth, you should move no faster than your discipleship is successful. The Lord was building in us a character so that we could all stand together. In 2015, we held our first conference. There were 25 people and it was in my living room. It's much easier to plan the women's breakfast that year. Our focus was the kingdom without competition. We adopted a slogan that's in our logo. Few in number, one in purpose. We actually had a healthy debate. You know that you're in a group of people that love each other when you can fight. What do you mean few in number? What happens when there's not a few of us? No, there will always, we will always be outnumbered. <laughs> if, if there's a thousand of us, there's still more lost people. If there's 10,000 of us, there's still more. The nature of Christianity is that we are a remnant. Where's the remnant church? Yeah, we are a remnant. But our purpose has to remain united, no matter what it is. That only comes as the Lord determines our purpose. In 2016, we held our second conference. It was in Virginia at Submission Ministries. We picked a nice, even number of people to invite to that. It was 70 people. And our focus was raising up sons as monuments to the Lord and eliminating the orphan cycle in ministry. If you don't know what that is, I want you to understand something we've been dedicated to from the beginning. The classic pattern that most of you have become familiar with is that there is one anointed man of God. You know it because he's on a stage that tells you he's better than you. And that one anointed man, everybody should support and everybody should get behind their vision. And his job is to raise you up until, of course, you show potential. And then when you begin to show potential, the question is, are you going to serve his vision or not? And if you have a vision that is different from his, then he orphans you. 
you got to go do that somewhere else. You, I mean, good, I, I don't want to get in your way, except sometimes they do want to get in your way. And the family is then broken. Uh, this is much like a lion pride operates rather than like Christians operate. You know, when a male becomes mature, uh, he's a challenge to the other male, so he has to leave. That is not what we wanted. We wanted to raise up sons that would become the very crown of our existence. That the glory of the churches would become what the churches produced in the way of disciples. I am so proud of the disciples that we see. The disciples that are coming from the churches are as strong as any that ever came from LCM. Although I am proud of LCM. And I'm still going to claim the pastors that came from LCM. <laughs> Look, by the time we um, left that meeting in 2016, we determined to plant fully autonomous and independent churches from within our local bodies. That's what the arising church is. That's... That's what uh, Submission Ministries is. That's what uh, so many of the churches are. They are fully autonomous. There is no papacy to report to. And yet, we owe each other a debt of love and we're accountable to each other because we are family. There were other areas where it was unnecessary to plant. We could incorporate like-minded churches that were fully dedicated to the same principles. King's Harvest Church is that way. Uh, so many of us came out of King's Harvest and it is being pastored by a man of God that we've grown up with and we have the same ideals. So we didn't plant it. We joined in the same vision with each other. Those ideals were the whole, full, unadulterated preaching of the baptism in the Holy Ghost. Can we have a hand for the almighty spirit of God? Now, I was once a cessationist until I got baptized in the Holy Ghost. Then it was pretty hard to deny that those things uh, now exist. Our churches, this is our heart. We want the world to know that. Secondly, our churches are committed to worldwide evangelism as a lifestyle that begins within our own homes and communities. When a church just begins, they cannot go to Nome, Alaska. When they begin, they have to practice inside of their congregation and inside of their community and then to the surrounding areas to reach the ends of the world. Jesus didn't say simply to go to the ends of the world. He gave them the spirit in one place and let them work out from there. And we're seeing that. Lastly, our churches are biblically orthodox. We do not evolve into contemporary heresies. If you ask us in year one what our feeling is on a subject, we will point you to the scripture. If you ask us in year 13, our feelings have not evolved on the subject because our feelings don't matter. Okay? Now, let me just say it very plainly. Our churches are committed to the letter of the text. Period. Now, having said that, one man reads a text and another man reads the text and we get excited about being sent in twos and another gets excited about seeing government in threes and we can argue about what's most important and the Lord's answer is, well, yeah. <laughs> we have the right to have different expressions of our faith. We do not have a right to redefine our faith. Amen? That took us to 2017. We held our third conference in Louisiana at King's Harvest Church. 
That was the first time that we opened up our invitation to everyone. We didn't know what would happen. There were, we were meeting outside in literally the swampland. The state bird over there is the mosquito. And um, 250 people showed up. And we were blessed by it. There were five churches in attendance. Our focus that year was fighting for our brother's vision. How many of you were at the conference last year? Look around. You know, this gets to be so much fun because now we're standing here in 2018. We're obviously in Crystal Lake at the Arising Church. We're now comprised of 10 main churches. We're all dedicated to the same core ideals. We all do it a little different and that's fun. Some are smooth-faced and beautiful. Some are burdened with glorious beards. But you feel the spirit of unity here, don't you? I wanted you to hear the spectrum here. Sugarland, Texas. Denton, Texas. Victoria, Texas. Yeah, that's right. We have three in Texas. <laughs> Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Gainesville, Virginia. Crystal Lake, Illinois. Chavai, Peru. Yogyakarta, Indonesia. Chennai, India. Cluj, Romania. And in response to a growing revelation from 2016 until now, we will soon be in the biblical region of Pontus. That is Turkey. Come on, where are Judah and uh, Nick and Peyton? Y'all stand up. Actually, run up here. I want you to hear about this. It's not happening this second, but I, it's our job to tell you about things that are developing. Amen. <laughs> you guys here? Um, so many of you know, we just had the opportunity to spend... Uh, an additional trip in Turkey for about three weeks where we had some time to explore and just ask the Lord to give us some vision for the future and clarity. And uh, I want to share a scripture with you and my brothers will add to that as we go. While he shares this scripture, <laughs> when Pastor Slaughter was uh, at Life Changing Ministries, Judah was still running around in his underwear. Is that awesome? He still runs around in his underwear, but that's inappropriate to speak about in church. Seriously. I did. I tore his ear one time when he wanted to wrestle. It was interesting. Many of the pastors that are in this church, the elders, we grew up together like family. And I don't know about all of you, but I imagine that many of you have lost your natural family and you're finding a new one in this room right now. Oh, man. We grew up with the family of God being family before anything else. And Nick Slaughter was there every time we needed him. Faithfulness marked his life. And praying for, love, natural family, but that was not the marker of their life. We are sitting here prioritizing our lives based upon the blood of the covenant not the water of the womb. All right. Let's go to Genesis 25 briefly. 
All right, let's take a look at verse 8. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. An, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre. The reason that I wanted to draw this scripture up is each of us independently had a burden for the Middle East and specifically for the sons of Ishmael. And as this began to grow in us independently, as God spoke about a calling, about a way of life, about what we were to accomplish in the future, this is a very broad topic. When we're speaking about the sons of Ishmael, they're Semitic, they're mixed inside of the, the Middle East. And there's a problem that dates all the way back to Isaac and Genesis. There was a break between Ishmael and his father, and a break between Ishmael and his brother. We've come to the opinion that Islam is a representation of men who do not understand the father and do not understand the son and therefore cannot understand the brother. That is why the Middle East is in turmoil the way that it is. Our heart and our passion is to see those that have been broken, that their family, that their inheritance has been destroyed restored back to the faith of Abraham, to the father that they were born to, to the brothers that they grew up with and born in the same household with. And the enemy has worked very hard to sow hatred there. And he's done it through thousands of years. And it's going to take the love of Christ to break it free. Some of the things that he's been showing us have been challenging each of us personally. We all have families. We have children. And we are looking forward to the day where we get to move into some of the most hazardous areas of the world. But the reason that we were doing that is because he placed a burden on us for those lost sons of Ishmael. Amen. My brother's going to share with you a little bit about how he has continued to narrow our vision in the things that we're currently praying about, how to carry this broad spectrum of a people group out and affect an area like Crystal Lake. We know he wants to affect the world, but how do we start somewhere? Amen. You guys having fun? Amen. Everyone, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter 1. So we're going to try to describe how God narrowed our focus to the area of Pontus. And it started with a call to the sons of Ishmael. And in the name of Jesus, we're going to see a remnant called out of darkness and into the kingdom. My voice isn't usually this deep, by the way, so. This is great. Let's start in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. Amen? There's nothing that the blood of Jesus cannot conquer. In this room, the blood of Jesus can break chains. To callings to go to nations that are locked up uh, by Islam or other demonic principalities, the blood of Jesus can break that. But as I was studying this, 
uh, I was drawn to the word scattered. I was like, Lord, you are scattering us among the nations. And uh, because we like Greek studies and study of the word, uh, the Greek word for this scattered is bizarre. And this is where it gets crazy. So I go to look up the word bizarre, and it doesn't bring me a Greek word. It brings me a city in Turkey. And it just so happened that that night, I'm meeting with pastors and elders and my brothers to pray about what God is going to do in the Middle East. And the words that they brought were, we're strangers in the world, but we are, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen. And Elder Baj comes and he says, the Lord showed me port cities on the Black Sea. And at this, at this time, I'm, I'm elated. I can't contain myself. And I pull out a map and I say, this city, Pizarre, is right here, a port city on the Black Sea. And the Lord's ability to lead us is far better than our ability to follow. Amen. And so in faith, we get on a plane and we drive to this town. And of course, the kingdom of God broke out. I'm talking five steps outside of the van. The kingdom of God fell. And those men are uh, slowly being discipled, becoming Christians, and they don't even know it. Uh, gaining a distaste for Islam and everything that it's created in their country, and they want freedom. Those sons of Ishmael are crying out right now, and they're saying, somebody, come show us the way to be free, and we're going to bring it to them. Amen? Amen. You see, faith in Yahweh God has never changed. Abraham was told, go. Take your family. Take all that you have and just go. Go in that direction over there. Just start walking. I, I can't tell you guys, uh, when we got the word Pazar, we bought tickets and based our entire trip on a single word in a single city. And we said, Lord, you got to do something. Because if you don't do anything, then this is a complete and total waste of time. Your time. We step out and we meet some men who are hungry for the gospel at a coffee shop. We begin to worship their hearts are being drawn to the Lord. Two nights later, we sit at a table with them, and they bring 10 others, and there's 12 men around a table. And we're fellowshipping and eating Turkish food and worshiping Jesus. And the gospel's beginning to break out. Yeah, it's, these words began specifically in 2016, but in reality, they began a little bit before that. In 2012, I'm, I'm sitting in Eric's home, and he has just come back from his trip to India. It's the first time that we've ever met each other. And he walks into his house and he's tired. He's jet lagged. It's a 12 hour difference between India and Houston. And he just wants to go to bed. But something in his spirit tells him to come down and, and fellowship a little bit. And the first time that he lays eyes on me, he says, the spirit's just telling me that you're called to the Black Sea, that that something's going to happen around the Black Sea. I don't know what exactly it is, but there's a call over there. And guys, six years later, this is where we are. We're, we're, we're sitting with you guys. So I want you to envision this last trip that we just came back from. We're sitting in a city called Batumi. It's in Georgia. It's right on the coast of Georgia and Turkey. We're sitting in a uh, grungy Russian hostel owned by some Russians that don't speak a lick of English. We're sitting on a second-story balcony. It's dark outside. Uh, there's 
craziness all around us, and we just plant ourselves at a table. We say, Jesus, would you speak to us? Would you run the heavens and come down and speak? It's the last night that we're all going to be together as families, and we want to hear from you. So we open up our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 2. You can go there if you'd like. Verse 2 says, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. That's, that was kind of the intent of this last trip. Lord, show us a city, Lord God. Show us the place where you want us to be. Give us that one, that one city where you want us to plant ourselves. Verse 3 says, Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. And in that moment, prophecies and visions and scriptures just opened up throughout our mind of the previous four trips that we had, and all of them. The visions, the scriptures, everything pointed to the north region of Pontus and Turkey. And in that moment, the Spirit poured out revelation and showed us, this is where you need to be. Right here, from Samsun down to Sivas, which we'll be touching on later, down to Erzurum and up into Batumi, Georgia. This is the region that we are supposed to be. This is the region that us, our families, and our family are going to conquer for Jesus Christ. We can't do it without you. We need each other. That region that he just described with those cities, if you Google Pontus from biblical times, those are the four corners of Pontus. It's incredible the layers of God's word and the way that he brings it together. We're introducing you to this idea now because these are some of our goals and as these things develop in the years, we want you to be a part of it through prayer. We, we, we want that. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Um, Justin Treister, are you here? Yeah. Justin Treister is going to be in Israel. We are going to send him to Israel. It's just a matter of time. The man has learned Hebrew. He is reading it and writing it. And um, he is going to be called... Yes, I do that to everyone. Have you ever noticed that foreign language speakers always like, oh, no, not much. And then they can carry on whole conversations like I, I Pastor Slaughter, you uh, you speak Spanish you know, only only, you know, just a little. No, he can preach in Spanish, you know. All right. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. I want to share a few scriptures that God has given the Treaster family about Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Say there when you're there. Paul's writing. He says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? This is a question that's been asked ever since this has been written. Everyone, the Christian church, Islam has asked, did they stumble so, so, fall, so far to fall beyond recovery? Paul says, not at all. 
Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. See, when I read that, I think, personally, salvation has come to me to make Israel envious. Salvation has come to me so that the Jews would know that there is a God, there is a watcher over Israel. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? How much more rich how much more rich, riches are there when the Jews come into the fullness of the gospel and they begin to serve Yeshua, Messiah? How much riches are there for the world? I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, the Jews, to envy and save some of them. For if the rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You see, when the Jews come into the fullness of the gospel, it's going to be resurrection power, church. It's going to be resurrection power when the sons of Israel come into their father's kingdom. I want to share with you one more verse. Turn to Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49. Verse 22. The Lord spoke this to me as I was uh, studying one day. And it says in verse 22, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. That's us. I will lift up my banner to the peoples, the goyim, the nations. And, I, and they will bring your sons in their arms. Who's the your here? It's Israel. It's the Jews. They will bring the Jews' sons in their arms. And they will carry the Jews' daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down to you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I wrote next to this. This is what ministry looks like to the Jews. When we come and bow down before them, then they will know that there is a God in Israel. They will know that Yahweh is the Lord. See, I, I remember in 2016, Eric came. He came to us and he said, hey guys, the Lord, it was right after the association in uh, D.C. He said, guys, I got a scripture that the Lord spoke to me from, and it's in Isaiah 49. And I looked right at Eric and I said, no way. So that's my scripture. <laughs> I claim it. Have any of you heard the Isaiah 49 uh, revelation that, that the Lord gave to the Stevens family? Have any of you been blessed by that? When Eric began to share out of that, that some will come from the region of Aswan, and he showed us a map of ancient Aswan. Israel was right there. And it began to, to burn in my heart that God has called us to the nation of Israel so that there will be a witness to the Jews so that they will know that he is God and they will enter into the fullness of this family. I, I take it upon ourselves that if we do not reach the nation of Israel, the fullness of our mission is incomplete. The fullness of the gospel is incomplete. And so we want to go to the nation of Israel. Last time we were there, we had... Jews invite us into their home for Passover. Had no affiliation, had no, uh, nothing to do with Christianity. Jews that just wanted to know who we are and why we were there. And you want to know something else? We met another Jew in Hebron. 
And he was so blessed by just meeting with us and seeing what God has done in our lives. He asked, he asked a question. He, he said, look, I want to come to the United States. Are there other churches in the U.S. like you guys? <laughs> Welcome to the One Association. We live in a culture where when you go to church, the focus is on what God can do for you. Help in this life, heaven in the next. Sounds like a snake oil salesman. I want to turn our focus in the direction of the word and do it in this moment. Our topic this year is restoring desolate inheritances. The Jewish people have long been the custodians of God's word. It was their job to safeguard this great faith that we share with them. Their emphasis is instructive to us on many levels. Not because they have everything right, but because there are many things they have that are right that we wouldn't know existed if it were not for them. When they divide the Holy Scripture into the law, the prophets, and the writings, they separate it into weekly readings called parashah. The first section read on the first day, very first reading of the year. So during the time you're celebrating Rosh Hashanah here, this would be the parashah. It's referred to as parashat bereshit. And that quite literally just means the portion of the beginning. Now, your Bible reading plans might work a certain way, but this is the way that Orthodox Jews have done it forever. And it is interesting that the passage that they read begins in Genesis 1-1. It ends in Genesis 6-8. That's not how I would do it. You know, I would have a whole chapter. I might have three whole chapters. If you wanted to go all out like they did, if you're going to start the sixth chapter, why not finish? The sixth chapter, how did they determine where to begin and where to finish? And the feeling is that this one portion of Scripture, the first one that you read, puts all other portions of Scripture into their proper focus. You ever missed a key detail in a movie and nothing in the movie made sense after that? It's important that we recognize that creation was for a specific goal. Creation always has a purpose. Your creation had a purpose. When you create a child, that child is born with a purpose. I want to look at the beginning and ending verses of this Parashat Bereshit and what happens between them and see if we can glean the intended impact of this portion of Scripture. In other words, we're going to look at the goal of creation that begins everything. Is that fair? So it's an easy one. Turn past the preface in your Bible. Get to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, this first chapter is without parallel. In this chapter, God describes the creation as good six times. He calls it very good as his final proclamation about the creation for a total of seven times that God proclaims the creation as good. It's indicating a kind of completeness or wholeness that is good. Somebody say good. good. Now, if I said that seven times, 
that redundancy would get your attention, might even get your annoyance. You know where the story goes from there, though. The man and the woman disobeyed God. They fell from his intended purpose. And the creation's purpose was diminished because of it. They were the rulers of the creation. And so when they fall from their purpose, the creation suddenly feels purposeless. By the time we reach the fourth chapter, we have the first murder in the first generation of human beings that were born. Man, that's a rapid descent, huh? This pattern of entropy continues all the way to Genesis 6 and verse 7. The end of the parashat we're talking about. Pick up with me there. Genesis 6 and verse 7. Say there when you're there. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. That's quite a rapid descent. Between these two passages, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 6-7, is the whole of the Bible story. Man and the creation were created by God as his inheritance. Made by God for God. Man fell from his purpose and chaos became the normal state of the world and God's inheritance. If you don't believe that, then drive past O'Hare Airport during the uh, traffic period. Tell me it's not chaos, it's the normal state. What happens to your garden if you leave it unattended? It's chaos. Man must be redeemed. And so the creation also must be redeemed. Man must be restored to the purpose of God. And the creation must have its purpose restored as well. Between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 6-7, we find the story of the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the restoration of man. The first six chapters of the Bible... Lay the groundwork so that the rest of the Bible can become commentary on how this is going to happen as a repeating pattern. Now, I told you that the parashat ended in Genesis 6-8, but I only read to 6-7. I did that because these six short chapters that comprise about 1,600 years bring us to a place where what God called good or very good seven times, he's grieved in the center of his soul that he even made. That's incredible, don't you think? I wanted that to weigh on you for a moment. Let's pick back up in the last part of 6-7 and read to 8 because this is where their passage ends on the first day of the first reading of the first year. The last part of 6-7 for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah. Somebody say, but Noah. <laughs> I am grieved that I have made them feel the pain in that sentence. That everything that God said was good, was very good. That he said it in an increasing emphasis as if to be a crescendo in a song. It is very good. He's now come to the place. Where he's grieved that he made them. How would you feel if that was your emphasis? If the sermon ended there, if everything stopped there, that God was sorry he had made you. Oh man. 
You're remembering at this moment what it was like to be lost. So they included one more verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. See, that one little glimpse of hope took them from creation to fall, but left them with a hope of redemption and restoration. This is the seed of the gospel. It says that you're under the judgment of God. But Noah. But God with one man, with one man's family, with one man who raised a family can bring up a nation and they can save the world. Oh man, but Noah. Well, we're used to reading sentences and it being but Noah. But what about you? It's the last phrase, but Noah, that I hope grabbed your attention. The creation which began beautifully was in utter desolation. But Noah. Utter desolation. But Noah. In a time of rebellion and darkness, this man... And his family that followed him. It doesn't say that Noah's family found favor. It said, but Noah found favor. And his family learned to walk in the favor that Noah had. Come on, men of God. Are you in this house today? Yeah. How you lead your family will determine whether or not they walk in a desolate inheritance or the favor of God. Yeah. Everything depends on you. Not just some things. Everything. Ladies, you should look at your man and say, I'm dependent on you. Don't you let me down. The descendant of Noah, Shem, would produce a holy nation. In this text, there's a glimmer of hope. The Jewish people would read it and see that their ancestors, that our ancestors had ruined everything. But there was still hope. The restoring plan of God has always focused on those on whom God's unmerited favor rests. Has anybody in here been shown some unmerited favor? Then we can look at the desolation of the world around us and say, but Nick Massey, but Cameron, but will do. Everything is going to hell in a handbasket, but Wade Sutherland. It is a glimmer of hope. In an otherwise dark and chaotic world. If you have been shown unmerited favor. Then God wants you to bring hope to desolate inheritances. I want to begin with you in Isaiah 46 in verse 8. Remember this. Fix it in the mind. Come on now. If God says remember it, fix it in the mind. Is that important? Take it to heart, you rebels. See, he really does know us. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none that is like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Listen, the fall did not catch God by surprise. Disaster does not catch God by surprise. He is not a God who has to make up a new plan. From the beginning of things, he has known how he will force it to turn out. He always planned to find a man 
and let his favor rest on him. He always planned to bring restoration through that man that he favored. What was a mystery is that it would include you and I. It was not a mystery to God, but was a mystery to us. Not one of us deserved to have God's favor on us. And yet you sit here with his words in your lap, his presence upon our shoulders. You felt him in the room. We did not deserve that. But his favor rests on us. And with that favor comes a certain responsibility to the one who favored us. If you are only at a particular event because you received an invitation that you didn't deserve, don't you feel indebted to the one that invited you? Never are the times too dark for God's plan. Never are the people of God too far gone for God's plan. If you've been favored by God with the knowledge and the love of Jesus, the Messiah, then you are the hope of every desolate inheritance found in the creation because your original call was to bring order and rule to the creation. Can someone say amen? amen. Reflecting on the creation story before we move forward. The creation story is your story. When you read the Bible, you should be looking at the Bible as if it were a mirror showing you parts of your life that you didn't see. If there's a lady in the house that has a magnifying mirror on your vanity, any ladies got those? Any of you got a magnifying mirror with a light around it? Yeah, that's exactly like the word. It shows you what you hope is not there, but you know probably is. When you look into the word, when you look into the creation story and your creation story, he starts by speaking his word into the chaos of your lost life, just like creation. He then starts to separate darkness from light within your very soul, just like creation. He brings order where there was previous chaos, just like creation. He begins to let you see life coming forth out of dry ground, just like creation. You begin to realize that you've transgressed God's commands as you see this activity, just like the creation story in chapter 2. Your need for redemption becomes evident and he sends his word by way of Jesus Christ, just like his word entered the world in creation. Having been redeemed, you fight for others' redemption, just like Adam was supposed to do in Genesis. While being restored... You are to participate in the restoring of the world. You know, when you listen to this kind of speech, it's not surprising that a great Jewish theologian, a young man named Shaul Polis of Tarsus, he wrote these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're exactly like the other creation. You've gone through the same process. In fact, the creation itself is waiting for you to finish this process. Because you are the hope of that creation. Not only is this idea not unique to the Newer Testament, it's pervasive throughout the Tanakh. Now, Justin Treister mentioned Isaiah 49. I'm not going to lie. There's never a day that goes by that Isaiah 49 is not on my mind. What is interesting about that is it's not always been so. During the time period that so many of you 
uh, and I experienced discipleship together. It was a chapter like any other chapter in the Bible. But when the Lord gives you a revelation, you have a responsibility to that revelation. Which begs the question right now, what has the Lord shown you that you have a responsibility to? And are you being faithful to that responsibility? Because when he reveals something to you, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, you now own it. He gave you a secret thing and it belongs to you and to your children. The legacy of a righteous father to his children are those revelations that you passed along. Not something that they can buy or spend. Isaiah 49 has become paramount for me. Beginning in verse 8, I want to share with you something that the Lord is sharing with me. In the time of my favor, somebody say favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. Now we can get very focused on properly exegeting this verse. And you can come to the conclusion, hey, this is Messiah. And it is Messiah. But are you not the body of Messiah? Are you not members of the body of Christ? So whatever is spoken of Messiah must also apply to you. And I'm going to show you how very specifically it applies to you. Just like Noah, in the time of favor, God is speaking. Has he favored you? Then he says clearly in the time of my favor, I will answer you, implying that you have a question, that you're asking him for something. Now what in all of the Bible are we supposed to be asking him for? It's not gimme, gimme, Lord, my name is Jimmy. It's not prayer for me, Susie, us four, but no more. It's not the selfishness of the American gospel, it's for the salvation of the nations. We are supposed to be asking him for something because like Noah, he favored us. And when his favor rests upon you, he has always intended for you to become a blessing to others. He says that the Lord answered you and saved you. Before you can help another person in this world, you must first experience the radical life-changing power of the gospel. This is why so many lost people want to do good things and end up, even in their good desires, performing wickedness. Most of our social organizations fall in that category. He says something so powerful here. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. So assuming that you've been favored and saved, have you been favored and saved? Yes. He says something extraordinary to you who have said yes. I will keep you and make you. I want to show you the word keep in Hebrew. It's a slide that we have here today, I believe. It's Strong's number 5341. And while we're waiting for that to come on the screen, of course, when you see something translated keep, it means keep, preserve, guard. But the word refers to people's maintaining things that were entrusted to them, especially to keeping the truths of God in both action and in mind. God's word is to be kept with our whole hearts. Our hearts, in turn, ought to be maintained in a right state. 
He says, I will keep you. I want you to understand something. He's telling you that because I favored you, because I saved you, I will make sure, I will preserve, I will make sure that your heart and your actions are in line with my heart and actions. This is why God disciplines his people. It's why he instructs us. He is tuning your ears to his command. He is leading your heart. He is keeping his promise. He didn't just save you and let you go. He didn't just say, here's life. Now go do with it what you want. He saved you for a purpose. You are his inheritance and you had become desolate. So he begins to set you right. But he has a larger inheritance. The rest of the people of the world and the world itself. I don't have time to go off in this subject, but we quote John 3.16 and we say, For God so loved the world and we have no idea what it means. We think that he's referring to us. God so loved us that he gave Jesus. In fact, you can just insert your name in that verse. No, you can't. The gospel's not about you as an individual. That word is, I said I wasn't going to do it, and I am. That word is cosmos. It means he loved his ordered creation so much that he put Jesus in it to set it right. In other words, he, you are a part of the ordered universe and he loves you, but it was not about you. In fact, he only shows his favor to people that he intends to become a spring to others. The only reason a man was ever blessed was to become a blessing. He says he will keep you. He goes on to say, I will make you to be a covenant for the people. Now, before you dismiss that as Jesus Christ, understand something. Who are you in covenant with? Jesus. Wives, you're in covenant with your husband. But he gave you his name. You have the opportunity to write a check with that new last name. Who does that check represent? The two of you, because you're in covenant together. Jesus Christ gave us power of attorney to use his name. He told us that we could use his name. He was made a covenant for the people, but understand something. You're a party to the covenant. You're the only covenant they will ever see. How will they know that he is a faithful God? They'll see your faithfulness to each other. How will they know he's a loving God? They'll see you loving each other. How will they know about the one you're in covenant with. Because you are an example of the covenant. So he doesn't keep Jesus. He doesn't just make Jesus a covenant. He keeps you. And he makes you a covenant. But for what purpose? For the same purpose that he did it for Jesus. To save the world. See, you are a party to the salvation and the restoration of the world. I have a distant friend who many years ago, back when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth on my 33rd birthday, sent me a white card. And with a red pen, he wrote in the white card, no pressure, Eric, but by your age, Jesus had provided salvation for the world. <laughs> the thing is, we need to feel the weight of that responsibility. And we then need power from heaven to address it in our daily actions. It will not begin in Africa if it did not begin in your home. It will not begin in the Middle East if it hasn't begun in your marriage. But if it has begun in your home, then the world can look and go, 
It's desolate. It's tohu vavohu. But the arising church. They can look and say, it's terrible, but the brown household. They can look and go, it's, it's without hope. It's doubt. Wait. But that family. This gives us unprecedented importance. God is going to restore this world through his agents of favor. And you are an agent of favor. I want to remind you that you are participating in God's work. We throw that around. I have a t-shirt that says I work for God and people laugh at me when I wear it. They're like, what does that mean? They assume I'm a biker. I don't know why. I said, well, who do you work for? Oh, well, I work for Southwestern Bell or whatever it is. I'm like, what a sad existence. <laughs> well, that's ugly. No, it's not. It's the most loving thing that's ever happened. You have not considered the reason for which you were born. Say, are you in full-time ministry? Is there another kind? I didn't see the part-time option in the gospel. You are participating in God's work. He's been doing it since the beginning of the creation. We think that in those six days, he created everything and he rested. But John 5, 17 says, my father is always at work, even to this very day. Now catch this next part. And I too am at work. See, Jesus as an anointed man, yes, Messiah, fullness of the deity in bodily form, all of those things, but Jesus operating as an anointed man says, because the Father is working, I too am working. So I ask you, what say you? If the Father has been at work from the beginning till now, and He wants to restore His inheritance that has become desolate, starting with you and your family and moving to a nation, do we really have the right to become preoccupied with anything else? I don't think that we do. As we awaken to that, verse 9 becomes important. <clears throat> this is why your church, church is, uh, Live, move, operate in the presence of God. Verse 9 says, To say to the captives, come out. And to those in darkness, be free. If you don't care about restoring desolate inheritances, this is not a part of your message. There are many churches in my area. Some that are the largest churches in the United States. This is not a part of their message. They would be insulted by the idea that somebody is a captive. That they're in darkness. They're already champions. They already are kings. And we are at the end of the procession. Dregs of the universe. So, oh, Pastor, it's always made me uncomfortable when you point out other ministries in that way. Tell that to John the Baptist. Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Paul who called people dogs and mutilators of the flesh. My goal is not to be ugly. My goal is to point to when we are off purpose. Our purpose is restoring desolate inheritances. You cannot restore a desolate inheritance if it believes that it is already there. Walk up to somebody with a brand new Lamborghini and tell them you'd like to restore their car. 
What's going to happen? But you walk up to somebody with a car that barely runs and say, we'd like to pimp your ride. <laughs> oh, Lord, thank you. You answered my prayer. When do I get it back? You know, when you know that you're driving a jalopy, you want help. When we don't understand our own state, we can never affect the state of the world. When you begin to see yourself rightly, you begin to see the world around you rightly. When you have a problem with you, you will see nothing else right. A first century rabbi said something about having a speck in your eye. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. Breaking bondages of sin by coming out of it. See... Verse 9 says, say to the captives, come out. It doesn't say, say to the captives, manage your sin. Try to sin less. Take an incremental approach to your sin. See if you can wean yourself out. The message of the gospel says, hey, you, come out now. Not later, not when it's convenient, not when we've dimmed the lights, but now, the moment that you realize you're a captive, the word of God says, come out. He goes on to say, to those in darkness, be free. See, we are to free those imprisoned in darkness by the same light of God's word that freed us. The word of God is what sets us free. It's what brings order into our life. Not the preaching of a man. Not the anointedness of um, a very special worship team. The word of God. The word of God needs to be the superstar of all of our activities. They will come into the freedom of the sons of God. That's what Isaiah 49.9 is ultimately about. To those who are in darkness, come into the freedom of the sons of God. Those that have been restored find a freedom that you did not have when you were in bondage. And the whole world is looking for it, but they don't know what they're looking for. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Because it seems to me that many of you have been righteous since... Probably the moment you left the utero canal. <laughs> but I remember a time when I drank too much because I was trying to experience a freedom that I didn't have. Freedom from concern, freedom from thoughts. There were times I did all kinds of things as an escapism. See, the sons of God don't have to do those things because we're already in the freedom of the new creation. What the world is actually looking for is freedom from their bondage. And they don't know how to get it. So those upon whom God's favor rests. Those who have been restored have an obligation to speak to those that are in darkness. I'm going to say this once and then move on from it. Your obligation is more than to tell them that you love them. More. Because the Bible says you don't love them if you will not rebuke them, frankly. I know it's popular to say other things, but respectfully, consider that your position may be wrong. You have the right to be wrong if you want to. In the 10th verse, we find something that is so beautiful, I don't know what to say. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat beat upon heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them by springs of water. What do you mean they won't hunger and thirst? 
Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When you, the agent of God's favor, show up a restored creation, and you call to someone in darkness with the light of God's word, and you say, hey, come out of the waters of chaos. You can produce life. Come. And they do. Then what they've hungered for their whole lives is suddenly fulfilled, and they hunger no more. They are filled with the righteousness they were looking for that no amount of porn could fill, that no amount of alcohol or drugs could fill, that no amount of hollow relationship could fill. They found it. You know what that looks like? That looks like a restored person with a restored purpose working to restore the creation. I'm privileged enough to be a geezer and I've seen it happen to many of you. That's incredible. Oh, don't, don't knock on the geezers. That's where all the hot water in India comes from. That's what they call a hot water heater. Brother, you would like the geezer? Yeah, very much. Give me a geezer. <laughs> Knowing our purpose and our place in the creation is everything. At this conference, we want to examine that because as a a group of churches, what we're doing is we're seeing that each of the churches has a little different angle with this. We're few in number, but we are one in purpose. We're aimed at our local communities. Yes, that's where God planted us. The same way a family is aimed at their family, but it's not all we're aimed at. We're also aimed at the very edges of the earth. And it might take us a while to get there, but that's okay because we don't plan on quitting. The 10th verse says that they won't hunger anymore because you will be filling them. It goes on to say it is your compassion that causes you to lead and to guide them. And where do you lead and guide them? It says beside the springs. Do you catch that? Verse 10 and lead them beside springs of water. Can you imagine my surprise? All of the years after 2011 when I'm leaving Washington, D.C., and I'm in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and God speaks to me out of Isaiah 49, and I am just blown away, and then I realize that the visions are connected. That you, the 12 springs of water that are supposed to feed the nations of the world, that what we do is we go and we get them, we restore their inheritance, we refresh their soul, and they become what we are. Oh, man, that encouraged me to no end because the word always confirms itself. Now, you and your churches are the springs of water that are verse 10. The connection to Elium and the nations is clearly that we will raise up churches everywhere that we go. That's always been the goal, hasn't it? Now, when you start a church, when you're in the first couple decades of a church, it's difficult to think that far into the future, and I don't expect you to have that worked out. I simply expect you to treasure it in your heart and know that the Lord will cause it to happen as you focus on restoring the world. The world we're going to build together can only be accomplished by those who are so serious about their covenant in Jesus that they live and act like Jesus to others. If he's going to keep you and make you to be a covenant, then you must look like Jesus. Does that make sense to you? Are you beginning to see that many people are not rejecting Jesus? They're rejecting his representatives because they're not representing him well. 
The classic passage that describes the world that God is building through Jesus and those in covenant with him is Isaiah 11. Can you go there with me? Am I boring you? Are y'all doing all right? Is it okay if we speak for a few more? If your stomach is eating your spine and you're overcome with hunger, I, we can give you a bowl of beans. I hear that worked out real well for a guy. Lentils, beans. Now, if you can bear with me for a moment, I believe that I can share something with you that you might be able to chew on for the years to come. <clears throat> Isaiah 11.1, 1, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. See, Jesus is the vine and the branch in the Scripture. But you're a part of the branch, and the fruit and the purpose of the fruit is to continue the work of the original tree. Understand this. If Jesse was a stump... And Jesus is the branch that comes out of him. Like David is the branch that comes out of him. And then John 15 says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And you need to connect to me and you'll bear fruit. What does fruit do except propagate more trees? Everything that Jesus is called to do, you, his branches, you are also called to do. Produce fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. See, he has given you the same spirit that he has, his spirit of holiness. The purpose of that spirit in Genesis 1 was to hover over chaos and bring God's word to it and fundamentally change it. In Acts 1... He was hovering over the chaos of a new creation, the, the disciples, and he brought fundamental change in order to them. For the first time, their focus became the rest of the world. See, the spirit hovering over the darkness of the waters in Genesis 1 is the same as the spirit promised in Acts 1, and they have the same purpose. For you to bring the light and life of God to the darkest places on the planet. That is why they didn't stop in Jerusalem. They went on to the outer reaches of the world. When the Lord found you, when you discovered his presence was near you, it may have been your darkest hour until the moment it wasn't. Man, how beautiful can that moment be when it changes? I can tell you I felt in here today. A lot of pastors say this, and I'm not sure they always mean it. I actually mean this. I felt in here today the same quality of his presence that I felt the very first night that he changed my darkness to light. I wasn't crying because of all of the people that are here. I've seen a lot of people. People can disappoint you, but you're not. You, I love you. I was crying because I realized that after all these years, he's still visiting me. What could you ever do that would deserve the omnipotent creator of the universe visiting you? But what if he's doing it just reminding you, see, I favored you. Now you have a job. Says David said, what is man that you are mindful of him? See, this made David take his kingship and the Lord's kingship seriously. When you recognize what the Lord has done for you, you want to change the world around you. One of the things that Isaiah 11.3 says is he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Pastor Radu Timku taught on this the last time I was in Romania. It's beautiful. It's written in my Bible. And you should ask him about it. It has to do with Yira. It, it means, the fear means revering or seeing as morally relevant or respecting. 
It also obviously means fear. But consider what that means. He will delight in the moral reverence, the respect and reverence for the Lord everywhere he goes. Man, shouldn't that speak of us? Everywhere we go, we should want the light of God's word, the power of his spirit to be relevant to their life. That means you have to address their darkness so that they can desire to be restored. You have to. You cannot see somebody restored any other way. Giving a pig lipstick does not change its nature. Seeing a sinner healed does not change the nature of the sinner. I would rather see that the sinner were born again. And when that is not our interest, then we're not restoring the creation. We're putting a band-aid on a bullet wound. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Are the spiritually and physically poor of the world the Lord's concern alone? Or should you share that concern? See, I think we're to share that concern. We're God's agents of favor. He wants to restore the world through us. He'll start with your life. He'll move to those that are in your family, in your household. And then he will move to the nations that you travel to. Nobody could have ever dreamed that an 18-year-old brawler would be sent to the nations of the world. But the Lord knew what would happen as a result of that. It's funny. He sends me to nations that I don't speak their language without interpreters all of the time. Do you know how humbling that is? You literally can only say what he tells you to say. Turns out that that's far more effective. In light of that, there's just a couple more things I want to share with you. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Now this is maybe the most famous verse outside of John 3.16 in all of the Bible. It's verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. Man, I love the description of the lion and the yearling together. The common way that that's expressed is that the lion will lie down with the lamb. Have you all heard that phrase? The lion will lie down with the lamb. It's taken from Isaiah eleven six. 6. Moshe Dayan was one of Israel's most colorful leaders. He was a military guy. He was not a religious guy, but... You know, in Israel, there's always a mixture of both. I want to show you a picture of him in 1970. He's got an eye patch on. He is holding a lion in his arms. He's not in a zoo. He's in his backyard. This guy lived on the edge. That's a male lion. And um, my favorite Moshe Dayan quote is, In the world to come, the rabbis tell me that the lion will lie down with the lamb. I believe this is true, but even then, I think I would prefer to be the lion. Christians, I wish we had a little more Moshe Diane in us. I love that around the world, you like a lily white Jesus with a uh, fluffy bunny-like uh, lamb in his arms and a picture of Isaiah 23 on your wall. Not Isaiah, Psalm 23. But the truth is, is that the picture of Jesus is far more aggressive than that. That he is also a lion. 
that he fights and wars for that which he loves. The fact is that the Bible presents God as a warrior more than it presents God as a lover. We're building a world to come by daring to restore desolate inheritances. It's been God's work since the very beginning. The truth is that this Moshe quote has more to do with us than you might think. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked man flees, though no one pursues him, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. See, when a church is on defense, when it is not interested in going to storm the gates of hell, it is sitting back trying to figure out how to protect itself from the gates of hell, we're acting more like the wicked than the righteous. Because the righteous are like a lion. They are walking, announcing their presence, letting the world know that there is a king. But the wicked flee, though no one is chasing them. It's an interesting view of jogging, isn't it? My other favorite Moshi quote as we move towards a close in this message. Did you notice he had an eye patch? He's a military general, but, you know, a, a relatively lowly beat cop pulled him over in traffic. And uh, he says, sir, you, uh, you were exceeding the speed limit by many miles an hour. He said, are you kidding me? I only have one eye and you expect me to watch the road and my speedometer? Listen, it's going to take men who are as bold as lions to move the church world back on the offensive. It's going to take families that have no quit in them to take captives from our fierce adversary. It's going to take people completely dedicated to the purposes of God to restore desolate inheritances. There's no room for the half-hearted. But there is room for those that will take the half of their heart and match it with the whole of God's. And it grows. Romans 8.19 says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. What a staggering thought. There are people all over the world that are waiting for you to become what God has called you to be. A new creation. Say, no, 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 that's the work of, you know, a guy like Pastor Radu. That's the work of uh, uh, a guy like Steve. That's, that's the work of someone else. We, we, we do that. Because we don't have confidence in the new creation inside of us. But when you recognize that God has made you new, how can you not want to see others made new? Say, well, Eric, there's so many here that are lost. You know, I, don't, I just can't worry about there. In my experience, the man that says that is not worried about the lost here. That's a, that's a convenient excuse. But the one that is burning for the lost here burns for the lost everywhere he goes. Anywhere that God would send him. The whole creation is waiting on us. They know something is wrong. That this is not how it's supposed to be. But they need you to lead them and guide them because you have compassion. They need you to bring them to the springs. The springs are your churches. Now, going to church is not salvation. But going to church is standing with those that have experienced the new creation with you. Hey, man, what day are you on? Dude, I'm barely out of day one. It's just evening and morning here. So really, I, I got dry land appearing in me. I'm kind of hoping God will do something with this barrenness. I'm, I'm in the vegetation stage, you know. I'm in the livestock stage. <laughs> Listen, Peter stood and preached with lion-like boldness. 
Notice his subject matter. In Acts 3.19, he says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. Well, if you're his hands and feet, then what is in heaven is reaching out to the earth through you. You know, when did your time for restoration come? The day you got born again. When will their day come? Well, how did you get born again? Was it without anyone sharing the word with you? Was it without anything? See, the word has to be spoken into darkness. It has to be. That is our job. That's what springs do, is we bring life where there would otherwise be death. Nehemiah had an interesting approach on this. I think the church world today would be disgusting to Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 6.10, he says, One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, and he was a shut-in in his home. He said, Let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. Is it safe where you go? Y'all are going where? Are you sure that it's wise to take children with you? Why are you taking women where you go? Well, because we're not sons of Shemaiah. We're not going to go hide in the temple and try to protect our lives. We looked out and we saw a wall and a city that needed to be restored. And we know we can't do it alone. So even if they come and take our lives, we believe that God's purpose is more important than our lives. Nehemiah was there to restore a wall. He couldn't hide in a church. He literally says, should a man like me do this? In other words, a man like you, an unrestored man, you can do it. But a man like me, no, I, I can't do that. There's a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Nehemiah had been favored by God with a call. Have you been favored by God? If you've been favored by God, then you are the hope of the world. Nehemiah knew that lives depended upon him. So he was willing to forfeit his life for their lives. That is what the gospel is. The forfeiture of your life for theirs. Say, no, 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 that's what Jesus did. Jesus forfeited his life so that we could have life. Yes, and he made you to be a covenant for them as well. That's why we carry around the death of Jesus in our body, that the life of Jesus might be revealed in others. That's why we're crucified daily. If you will not die for them to live, then you have not yet become a new creation. That's a little different altar call than help in this life and heaven in the next, isn't it? The one association of churches are going to be as bold as lions. We are going to accomplish the will of God. And we're not going to settle for protectionism, isolationism, self-indulgence. It's time for the courageous spiritual conquest on behalf of our king. Don't you agree? Amen. I want to brag on my friends for just a second as we, for the third time, move to a close. You'll have time to eat. Crystal Lake's small. The One Association churches have heard the hour of God strike. Last year, our t-shirts spoke about uh, holiness and masculinity because we had heard the call of God and we wanted to set 
an example. It was the call of C.T. Studd when he uh, sent letters to all those that he invited to participate in his work. I just want to share some things. Some things that you are a part of doing and you may not even know. In Suriname, Pastor Nick Slaughter fought for real repentance. And an infilling with the Holy Spirit. Healings that had never been seen in that area broke out. And the leading men of the ministry are now filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized in the Spirit. And they were not before. In Mozambique, Pastor Wade Sutherland and Elder Bajerajina, they fought for freedom from demonic possession in many of the inhabitants. They won that battle. They saw a modern Pentecost unlike anything I have ever witnessed before. Nobody laying hands on anyone, a crowd just like this, and people standing up and speaking in other tongues, unaided by anything else, and then turning and praying for their neighbors until almost everybody in the room was. In all of my years in Christianity, I've never seen that before. In Romania, Pastor Radu, Pastor Matthew, they've endured a transition from Saul to David. It preserved lives and it upheld the justice of God. They worked together across two continents and not one family in a church was lost during a turbulent transition. Is that worth something to the Lord? Yes. Pastor Buddy in Peru. It's been visited by Pastor Eric Treister. Pastor Tim Koo's been there. Uh, Pastor Nick Massey. I mean, so many of you have been there. We've seen a transition from a bitter ministry to a sweet ministry. The neglected people of Colca Canyon have the word of God in a way that has not been demonstrated according to their own testimony since the 1980s. There are baptisms in water and there are baptisms in spirit and they're becoming commonplace there. How many of you in this room have been to India with a One Association Church? Look at that. Pastors Lamb, Elder Ben Hefner, Pastor Mike Hutchinson, they fought alongside Anne and Israel when the churches were being decimated from government crackdowns. Whole areas that we administered in for 10 years were suddenly inaccessible to the gospel. But these men were undaunted by the adversity. In fact, in the last couple of years, we've built new buildings. New avenues have been found for ministry. And the Israel family is training their seventh generation of ministers as we speak. Is that worth something in the way of restoring desolate inheritances? In Indonesia, Pastor Brent Vincent has been aided by Will Do, Elder Mark Morrison. So many, I mean, we, we could name them forever. The point is we're doing these things together. There was a failing model of Christianity there that had no real evangelism, no real discipleship. And it's giving way to a lifestyle full of spirit-filled converts that are living in communities. They're visiting orphanages and they're being discipled in a way that is going to change their children's children until the world they live in is totally different. Is that worth something? It's worth something to the people that are there, I assure you. In Matamoros, Mexico, King's Harvest Church, led by Pastor Justin, and along with members from almost every church here, they went and fought for Mario Salinas and his four daughters to have a home. They worked in the rain. They poured foundations. They built buildings. Work in Matamoros had ground to a halt because of the cartel activity. 
personally in my life five or six times I've had a gun put to my forehead there. Several times in front of my wife and children. The men in this room did not back down from that at all. Not only is that house built, but the family has a church. They have a vision. They have hope. As we sit here tonight, today, is Wendy Salinas here? Oh, she's... Oh, stand up, Wendy. They got grandchildren in her belly. When you want to know, is it really worth, is it really worth risking your life to restore a desolate inheritance? Next time you see Cody and Wendy, they will be holding a new inheritance that's the result of that. In Aguas Calientes, uh, Elder Charlie Brown, Pastor Wade Sutherland, Pastor Matthew Piro, so many of you led aspiring teams of evangelists to support a pastor named Pastor Ramirez. Now, I haven't met Pastor Ramirez yet. But the reputation that my friends have shared uh, with me is outstanding. And I did meet his daughter, Susie Brown. Are you here? Stand up, Susie. Her father. Yes. Her father felt alone in ministry after 30 years, a product of the orphan cycle we're talking about. He was discouraged. And brothers pulled alongside him, and he describes himself as restored. How beautiful is that if you are the pastor? And go figure, his daughter ends up marrying into one of the churches. Are there single people here today? If you're single, raise a hand. If you're single, stand up. Amen. Listen, you never know what the Lord will do. Have you ever had the feeling that you're in church and you're faithful right where God wants you to be and there's just not enough of you, like single people? Welcome to the conference. Y'all can have a seat. Listen, many of your churches have been assisted by pastors of the One Association through difficult transitions that could have destroyed lives. Devastating financial situations that seem hopeless. As an organization, we've reorganized churches we've refounded we've renewed the inheritance of the lord because his worth his work is worth it don't you think are the purposes of god worth it to you his people are worth it his inheritance is worth it we're planting fully autonomous works in entirely virgin soil we'll continue to do so until the whole world is filled with the glorious truth of the gospel of our king internationally We'll soon be in Turkey full time. Beyond that, we'll be in Israel. But here domestically, the pastors of the Arising Church got together with some pastors in the One Association. And our latest church plant is in Denton, Texas. And that is the Remnant Church. Kaysen, are you here? Stand up, Kaysen. Now you could ask yourself for a second... Well, look, I appreciate it, but aren't there a lot of churches in Denton? Well, there's not a lot of churches Kaysen was supposed to go to. This is one of the first lives that is being transformed by the faithful obedience and sacrifice of the members that are here. Kaysen, has it meant something to you? Yeah, he comes from a, a long line of pastors, and yet his inheritance was desolate, and God is breathing life into it. We love you, Kaysen. 
I want to remind you that when Paul said fight the good fight of faith, he described it as a fight. This is not easy to do. It, it takes righteousness that propels you forward like a lion. It, it, it takes that. Too long has the lamb been our um, only motto. We are to war for the purposes of the Lord like a lion, and we are to lay down our lives like a lamb. But you're not supposed to sit on your salvation. There is a story I've been telling a lot, and this really is our closing. It helps explain our, our t-shirt. The t-shirt with a lion with uh, lightning in his eyes, uh, and the words Legio Fulminata, is, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. I would like my friends to help me do this. And uh, after this, we'll go have some lunch. Um, yeah, and Trister, if you guys will just come right here for a minute. The idea is that Rome had been the persecutor of the church for a long time. Romulus and Remus are the ancestors of Rome in their own mythology. These were boys that were raised by wolves. Uh, they grow up to become shepherds and one kills the other. How many of you would like to be pastored by that shepherd? Probably not. The spirit of Rome has always been kind of a nasty spirit. If you don't believe that, uh, read the news. I mean, read the news in any decade for the last several hundred years. That's not being ugly to good-hearted people. I care nothing for those sensitivities. I love Catholic people. I hate the satanic institution. If that bothers you, well, there are a lot of churches in the one association. Go take it up with them. Uh, you may find they feel the same way. But you open a newspaper, you find out how wicked the Roman institution is. Well, the Eastern Empire uh, and the Western Empire were uh, relative adversaries of one another for a long time. And during the year 300 uh, and 11, an edict of toleration was issued. This is a guy named Constantine that they call Constantine the Great. And he basically said, look, we've been trying to stomp out Christianity and we can't. Let's, let's tolerate it and see what happens. Well... It's one of the few things that the Eastern Empire agreed with the Western Empire on. A guy named Licinius, who was ruling in the Eastern Empire, he went along with the Edict of Toleration. You're right. Rome as a whole has been killing Christians so long, we might need to try a new approach. By no means did this mean that Rome was Christian. It meant that they would tolerate it the same way they tolerated the worship of goats. Licinius accepted the edict... But something happened all around the Roman Empire when you were no longer killed for being a Christian. The numbers of Christians were much higher than either emperor expected. So Linnaeus rejected, he recanted his original edict of toleration. One of his big problems was that even in the Eastern legions, Christianity had become so pervasive that there were entire legions that were Christian. Among the legions of that time... The one that had the best war record, the one that was kind of the Rambo of their day, was called Legio Fulminata. It literally translates to something like he comes with lightning or like lightning. And what they didn't know prior to this turn of events was the major success of the legion was due to the fact that all of its most prominent leaders were now Christian and they were not doing things like extorting people. They were not fighting battles that were outside of what they were commanded to fight or they believed God told them to. And this meant that they were winning the battles that they were going into because God wanted them to be done. Well, Licinius got 
concerned about this. If the legions are not loyal to him, then his basis of power is threatened. And by the way, he, he has a Western adversary that would like to take his territory as well. So moved, he calls on a guy named Agricola. Agricola, sole job in life, I bet you've met him, was to persecute Christians. That was his sole job in life. Every church has a few of these people. They tell you they're going to be with you forever. And then the next week they're trying to burn your church to the ground. They're leaving Google reviews everywhere. They're calling everyone they know, telling them what a terrible organization you are because you finally managed to step on their idol. Agricola is that guy. And he set out in every way to destroy the Christian movement. The problem is, is the men were real Christians. And Agricola was having a hard time doing it. And what I'm going to share with you is actually a true story. Every bit of it is true. It was recorded in history and is one of the most well-attested to stories of the early Christian period. It went something like this. Assuming that these men are legio fulminata, then Agricola isolates the 40 that seem to be the most prominent in legio fulminata. And the very first thing that he tries to do is he looks and he says to one of the Legio, hey, I will offer you land. I will give you title. I will bribe you if only you will recant Jesus Christ. But the riches and wealth that we have come from a kingdom that's conferred on those that stand with him. I will not leave this ice. This upsets Agricola, don't you think? I can't buy them off. So he moves to his next phase. He said... I want you to understand, Legio, I will torture you. I will torture you in front of your family. I will deride your family, and I will kill your children. Thank you, a great Agricola. We appreciate the opportunity to prove our faith genuine in the sight of suffering. The Apostle Peter wrote a letter to a church not far from this area, and he confirmed in advance that we would be standing before you, the question we want to ask you is when you stand before our king, will you be able to bear the wrath that he will pour out on you? I have no reverence for you or your king. I serve only Caesar. You know, I know how I'm going to beat you. I'm going to begin to tell people stories that we both know are not true about you. That you're a worshiper of the devil and everything that is false. That you're an abuser of children and such. You can say whatever you like, oh great sir, but the truth of the matter is, is that we have died with Christ, and our reputation is already dead in him. Brothers, stand firm. Stand firm. There is no choice. Soldier, take these men to the ice. If you disown Jesus then he doesn't have to take you to the ice. Jesus said, if we disown him before men, then he'll disown us before his father. He's been faithful to me my whole life. I won't be separate from him for a second of cowardice. Soldiers, strip these men and take them to the ice.
we willingly offer ourselves. Nothing that we have to lose in this world is worthy of losing what we have to gain in the kingdom to come. We give up all for Christ. The story says that the men stripped themselves while the soldier watched and attended. I'll come stand on this ice. They held hands in a circle while the soldiers watched. The next thing that Agricola did is seeing that their feet were frozen and sticking to the ice and they were rocking back and forth trying to encourage one another. He ordered that warm baths would be set at the edge of the lake and he called to them. The ice was already getting bloody because the flesh was being pulled off of their feet as they rocked back and forth with frostbite. He ordered that warm baths be put all around the lake. He had the lost relatives come and feast and get in the warm baths. And then he called to them through the soldiers. And he said, hey, if only you will deny Jesus, then you can come participate in this feasting with this warm bath. But it was said that you could hear one of the soldiers encouraging the others. Brothers, consider, consider what our Savior Jesus Christ had endured on the cross. Consider the life that he lived. Consider the years that we have walked together with Christ and with one another. Do not leave this moment for, for a couple moments of pleasure and trade in an eternity with one another in glory with Jesus Christ. They stood strong as our after hour went by. Everyone waiting for them to succumb to the cold. Naked and bleeding on the ice. While the world around them went to delicacy and went to comfort. And Agricola stood and he watched. There was one brief moment when he began to get excited. Because one of the men broke courage. And he began to walk off the ice. As he reached the edge of the ice... He fell dead before he reached the bath. And the most unusual thing happened. The soldier who had been guarding them threw down his arms, took off his clothes, and joined the other on the ice. And it was overheard him quoting to them Revelation 6:11 out on the ice after seeing their example. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. We will not let the devil steal one from our number. They stood on the ice, and the witnesses that watched them, their number complete, 40 in all of Legio Fulminata, the witnesses said an angelic light appeared over them as they encouraged each other with hymns. It was said that they were singing. The area that these men are called to is Savas, Turkey. 
It's where this story took place in the early 300s. Then it was called Sebast. They've gone to stand by that lake. They've counted that cost. We're convinced that if one drops out, God will replace that number because he has determined that he will have the rewards of his suffering. What we're asking you to do is to look at the inheritance that is your life and the price that was paid to redeem it and answer the question, is Jesus' sacrifice for you worth you sacrificing for others? Is it worth that? And then our encouragement as we all start to look towards restoring desolate inheritances is that we never leave the ice. That's not who we are. We are the ones that are coming like lightning. Jesus' coming is like lightning that strikes in the east but is visible even in the west. We will cross the earth that the light of God would be visible in dark places. That is who we are. That is who you are called to be. Legio Fulminata happens to be the same regiment that participated in destroying the temple. That's grieving, isn't it? But 300 years later, they stood for the temple that is the body of Christ. What God never could accomplish through an institutional building, he will accomplish through the relationships that are in this room. Those 40 men stood frozen on the ice, and now they're warmed in the light of God's glory because their relationship with each other and with Jesus would not break. That is the same thing that will make us strong. My word to you is never leave the ice. Would y'all like to worship something together? Yeah. We're going to close in worship. As we close in worship, I'm going to ask you to do something. There'll be many altar experiences at this uh, conference. But what I'm asking you to do is consider, number one, has your inheritance been restored fully, totally? Or are you still allowing a part of it to be covered in darkness? If you are, the word of God to you has come out of darkness. Don't manage it. Don't play with it. Don't keep it as a hobby or a hidden pleasure. If you need to come out of darkness, then you come out. And the best way to expose darkness is with light. No more secrecy. Make yourself accountable to a pastor in your church. If you are a restored creation, then what captives do you need to set free? Who is waiting on you to manifest as a son of God, to show the courage of Christ, to fight for their soul as Jesus fought for yours? You might need to put them before an altar at the Lord. It will require your death for them to have life. One way or another, it will be at an inconvenient time. It will be at a moment that was not of your choosing. And that is the gospel. Whether you need to come out of darkness or you are fighting for a captive to be free. We are the family of God. And when you take on one member of this family, you get us all. I want to open the altars in any way that seems best to you. But let us worship 
Let us worship God acceptably. And the most acceptable worship you could give Him is the sacrifice of that which you've been withholding from Him. Then when we move into the next session, you'll move in in a new place with the Lord. You'll hear it in a new sense. The heart that's been circumcised will be the fertile ground for revival. Take this time and examine yourselves. And above all, be obedient to the Spirit. Because we are men who will never leave the ice. He is worth the sacrifice. The nations deserve your sacrifice.